Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4, as we will hear from the Holy Spirit. 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 12 and going to the end of the chapter, which is verse 22. 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 12. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat from the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news about the ark, that the ark was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured because of the father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Today, there are many people who are on the edge of their seat, so to speak, each and every day. These people wonder when the earth will end and the temperature will finally escalate to be so high or so low, it's always unclear, that all life on earth will be extinguished. This climate crisis is often said to be the greatest crisis of our generation by the youngest generation. And with this outlook, with the understanding of the world and our place in it, we'd expect these people, or would rather we expect these people, to have any kids. A poll by ABC, even in 2022, shows that nearly one quarter of Americans, ages 18 to 45, cited climate change as their reason to reconsider having kids. And if these climate activists are right, although they have been wrong, for 60 years straight now, we cannot blame them for reconsidering. If they were right, if tomorrow an impersonal force like heat or cold extinguished all life on earth, or nearly all life on earth, why would we bring more children into it? In such dire situations where annihilation is all but assured, why add to the slaughter? That is the question. We have a similar psychological situation in our passage today, in one person, but even all in all Israel, 
The situation of Israel has become so dire that even the birth of a son brings nothing but sorrow to an Israelite mother. Last time in 1 Samuel, we dealt with the religion of control and power which is within this Israel. And the outcomes of that type of idolatry in the military and high priesthood of Israel. Hophni and Phinehas and all of Israel's army was destroyed. They had considered Yahweh to be contained in the Ark of the Covenant, and so they tried to use, control, and manipulate God through this Ark, all for the sake of their own empowerment. Well, last time we saw the results of this type of attempted control of God. Israel not only lost, but their enemies were empowered, and their military and their whole structure of power was destroyed. In fulfillment of God's promise as well, to kill Eli, or rather Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in 1 Samuel 3, the high priest of Israel died. And yet, something additional to this judgment came upon Israel here in 1 Samuel 4. Samuel had declared it years earlier, so that the news of Eli's sons dying ought to have been expected by Israel at this time. And horrible as it was, the destruction of Israel's army was not even the worst news that Israel heard that day. Had Israel's army been destroyed, but the Almighty God had remained, then nothing could be too great a disaster for them to overcome. Yet this seemingly, that this was exactly what did not happen. The Almighty God, Yahweh, had seemingly forsaken Israel and let the sign of his covenant presence and blessings for Israel be taken captive into an iniquitous land of iniquitous people, the Philistines. Israel had not desired God, but merely his power, as we saw last time. So God had given them what they wanted and left them to their own so-called power and symbolically left them through the Ark of the Covenant's departure from their land into the Philistine land. What's interesting in this section now, as we go into verse 12 of 1 Samuel 4, is that we get the reactions of everyone in Israelite society, not just the military and the priesthood any longer. High authority, low authority, men, women, young, old, all of them react to the news here in our passage. Although Eli is the focus in our text and He is an example of what happens in Israel. So let us first examine all Israel's response to this horrible news. Eli, who had stayed back with the tabernacle of God in Shiloh, hears this horrible news from one of the few men who had escaped with their lives, starting in verse 12. This man comes with dirt on his head and his clothes torn, which is a sign of the greatest distress. We see this in Genesis 37, 28 with Reuben and Job in Job 12, or rather 2.12. This is bad news, whatever is coming. This is bad news, whatever this man has. However, by verse 14 in our text, everyone knows this is bad news, but Eli. He's sitting and watching in his usual spot. But in verses 12 through 15, we see that Eli is in a bad physical state so that he wouldn't know. He's blind, he's old, and he's fat. What's worse, he knows the ark of God is in danger so that he's looking out for it, looking for this news. Interestingly, he's not waiting for information about his sons, but for the ark of God. 
This is surprising considering that he has let his sons do absolutely abominable things because he loved them, so, or so-called loved them, and would not discipline them. But it shows how complex of a person Eli is, unfortunately. He really did care about the Lord. Although he was filled with error, weakness, and other heinous idolatries, he cared for God and for God's people, even if in a weak and misguided way. Eli is really a tragic character in 1 Samuel, like Saul will be later. He had some good intentions, but good intentions are no replacement for a good heart, a heart after God's own heart, the undivided love for the Lord. His actions were obviously man-centered, as we have gone over last time, and not God-centered. He ought to have repented, and he ought to have judged his own sons, as God called him to, but he was not willing to give up his own honor, his son's honor, perhaps greatly, and suffer for God's name. And so he was judged, as he ought to have been. Eli was not theocentric, God-centered, but man-centered. Eli is another tragic character in the book of Samuel, as we'll see over and over and over again in these these beginning chapters of 1 Samuel, and even continuing into the later. As Saul must give way to David, the man after God's own heart, so Eli must give way to Samuel, the judge and the prophet after God's own heart. The theocentric man must be, and the God-centered man must leave. This text in verse 13, his heart trembled for the ark, also shows us that Eli expected that the judgment against Hophni and Phinehas would be accomplished here. But he was not sure about the ark. He was in suspense about the ark. No, though he was blind to see it coming, the worst judgment he could imagine was to enter into his ears. And what was this bad news? After Eli asks for it, the messenger says four things, in fact, in verse 17, but only the last matters to Eli, which was that the ark of God was taken by the Philistines. At this last word, Eli, in verse 18, falls back in woe and under the weight of his obesity and his age, breaks his neck. His neck and the legacy of Eli is broken. And we see the aftermath in the birth of his grandson through Phineas in verses 20 through 22. Her response to the news of the ark's departure is not surprising, but it's disturbing. Her labor pains come upon her with this added stress of the disastrous news. And although she has a son, so that the line of Eli is not yet destroyed, she is so overwhelmed and overcome with sorrow that she seems not to even notice and calls her son Ichavod, or where is the glory? And then died soon after naming him. Children symbolize the future in every story, so that the naming of this child as where is the glory shows what she thinks of the future of Israel. She felt their future was utterly bleak, and the text explains the reason for her sorrow in verse 21. The author says, The ark has been captured, her father-in-law and her husband are dead. These are the reasons given. But notice in verse 22, she speaks from her own mouth, the main reason for her sorrow. She said, departed is the glory from Israel. For, and here is her main reason, the ark of God is taken. So to summarize, Eli, the people and Eli's daughter-in-law, all despair at the loss of the ark and even die as a consequence of it. 
as a consequence of their sorrow. Are they right in reacting in this way? Had God utterly forsaken Israel? Although Eli's daughter-in-law placed her opinion in the form of a question, uh, where is the glory, she is obviously in despair. How shall we evaluate Israel's response to this judgment from God, and especially the despair they had when they heard the ark went into captivity? So second, let us evaluate Israel's despair. On the one hand, Israel's despair is completely warranted. That is, Israel is in one of the worst places in their history as a nation, only below the Babylonian exile. Without a temple or a tabernacle and the ark, then the sacrificial system of Israel cannot continue. And there's no reason for it to continue. The ark of the covenant symbolizes God's presence with his people. And without this symbol of God's presence, Israel is now doubting whether they will survive. The covenant curses of Deuteronomy 20 ought to be swirling in their minds at this point. God may not be merciful, and he may bring down his swift justice upon Israel. Some of their despair is indeed warranted. But on the other hand, their evaluation, especially from Eli's daughter-in-law, is unwarranted. That is, all Israel is still thinking in terms of power religion. They're reacting in those terms and not in God's terms. Israel had forgotten the God of glory. They had forgotten the God of glory, the God of grace, and it shows in their reactions. That is, they had considered things in terms of practical power and had not considered God's way of salvation promised from before time, long ago. Israel is weak and powerless because the ark of God is departed from Israel And yet, they ought to have known better than just to utterly despair. Consider Genesis 3.15 with me, which promises victory, but in unexpected ways. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking to Satan. Israel had so focused themselves upon what they deemed to be powerful that they had not listened to either Hannah or Samuel's words, and especially not to the words of this prophecy in Genesis 3.15, among many others. They had lost sight that God was gracious and forgiving at all. The grace, that grace was his intention with Israel. This explains how Eli, in all of Israel, had not repented or brought judgment against the wicked sons of Eli as they ought to have. No person faced with their sin by God himself has yet repented in 1 Samuel. Hannah had said, not by might nor by power shall a man prevail, and Israel had not listened. And God promised through Hannah to destroy the wicked nations, saying, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. And also, verse 10, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones so that he would not destroy Israel utterly in his grace. Instead, he would exalt his anointed king. Israel had forgotten the glorious God of grace. Israel may continue to incur the wrath of God for their sins without sacrifices to atone for them, but God has graciously promised. He has promised a way a way that ceremonial animal sacrifice explicitly speaks of and filled with grace and glory. 
that it was held out to Israel the way of faith in God and saving Israel himself, himself, not through animals and boxes like the ark. And so we go third to answer Eli's daughter-in-law in her question, where is the glory? Where is the glory? The glory was not in the high priests. It was not in the military. It was not in the sacrificial system. It was not in the ark of God with all of its gold. The glory was in God. And in his gracious Messiah promised in Genesis 3.15, Israel was so focused on their own power and their own glory, on the glory of their country, so focused on themselves like Eli and not God, that they had forgotten where their glory really came from. And God was reminding them, your glory comes from me, your Lord. God was refocusing Israel here upon his gracious self. Israel had forgotten to be God-centered. Where is the glory? It is with God and not with man. Where is the glory? It is not in the ark. It is with God. So God goes even one step further, and God gives an image of his glorious plan for salvation through Christ, through the story of the captivity of the ark of God, to remind him of his grace and how it will be accomplished. We see in this text perhaps one of the most clear prophetic stories of Christ's incarnation and suffering in all of the Old Testament. Here we have God take the fate of all Israel upon himself, doing what they ought to have done, and showed Israel the way of glory. The way of glory is through God himself and his Messiah. When Israel had done all to deserve hell and damnation, God did not abandon them. By no means. God, on the contrary, went into enemy territory to purchase Israel's salvation for himself when it was proven without a doubt that Israel could not save themselves and they were utterly helpless at this point. God proved to Israel that salvation could not come from them, but God would accomplish it by his own hand. Not by your might, nor by your power, says God. God will save Israel, and he will do it himself and not another. And he did this in a strange way to our own imaginations, according to the religion of power and control. He did this through being forsaken. Where is the glory? The glory in this story is not with Israel, certainly not. It is with the pre-incarnate Christ and his suffering activity. Christ, with the ark, went into captivity, showing that he was willing to suffer for his people to save them and bring them to his own glory and to his own presence again. Where is the glory? We too often place that glory in power and influence. We too often despair when those men and women of faith who are in positions of seeming power fail us, when our political side fails us. Why? Because we think the glory is somewhere else. Because we think that glory is somehow not entirely in God, and especially not in suffering. Glory, so power, religion tells us, is really in our victory, so they would say, over our enemies and our sins. But this is impossible, brothers and sisters, so the Lord tells us. We cannot be victorious in and of ourselves. Is the cross and the way of the cross not glorious enough for us? 
Glory is in God's victory over our enemies and our sins. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be the victor. We have, have we decided that the way of suffering and the way of God's own descent into the belly of our enemies to destroy them in our sin is not glorious enough because we do not feel we are the main actor in it? His glory will always be for the good of his people, brothers and sisters, but the problem for us humans is that God most glorifies himself in the most surprising ways to us. Israel had idolatrously lost sight of God and was indeed trying to glorify themselves. But the God of glory showed them the right way and showed them that to become man-centered is to be idolatrous and brought them to despair because a box which symbolized God had been captured, a clear sign to the pagan nations at least, and so to their own minds for Israel, of Yahweh's weakness. So they despaired. But brothers and sisters, God's way is the way of the cross, the path of humiliation, not the path of raw power, willpower. The nations and even the Jews mocked Jesus upon the cross. They mocked, could this be your God? Where is the glory? The glory, says God in the Old and New Testament, is in the way of suffering, the way of the cross, in God's way. The glory is in God's Son, submitting to the humiliation. The glory is in the pre-incarnate Son, taking the judgment of God upon himself, and instead of letting Israel be utterly forsaken, as they deserved in this text, was forsaken and brought into a foreign power. He allowed the ark to be captured that he might show just how powerful he is and the way of salvation, even to this Old Testament Israel. Where is the glory? The glory is in the way of suffering, in the way of the cross. We may suffer here on earth. We may struggle against sin here on earth. We may live lives which look far from the powerful victory that we crave, but do not lose sight of God. Do not become man-centered in these things. God's way of glory as God of glory, the God of glory himself, is glorious and is glorious alone. Not your man-centered ideas of glory. Do not lose sight of God and do not lose sight of the way of glory, the way of the cross, so that when we ask, where is the glory, we answer with, it is in the way of the cross and in the triune God who saves us by faith. And when we ask, upon this earth, where is the glory? We can answer. We can answer the great and those to seem to have power and answer with truth. But an answer that may seem strange to them. Instead of being upon the edge of our seat, like those who have no hope upon this earth, as if the Lord was to judge us for not being as glorious as we ought, when we indeed are completely sinful. Let us look to the God of glory who has accomplished our salvation, all in his Son. He will soon bring us to eternal glory through what the religion of power calls shameful, the glorious cross where Christ descended into hell and took the wrath of God. Let us praise this God of glory for his great glorious way of salvation. Let us pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your descent. We thank you, Lord, that you were not only incarnate, 
But you sacrificed your son. You sacrificed him, and he sacrificed himself. So great was his love. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? That we might not be forsaken. Lord, you have shown us this in this text. You have shown us that you have done this for us, not because we are good, not because we have power, not because we have glory, but because of your love, because you are gracious, because you are good, or because of your promises. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a sacrifice which is permanent, one which we can look to as the God-man and have eternal confidence in your love for us. We love you, Lord, and praise you, and ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.